together as, as a family uh, to open the Word of God, to consider the Word made flesh, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, the Son of God, and it lies, this truth that we're considering this morning, it lies at the very center of the Gospel. There exists this really indescribable, unfathomable elevation drop as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, releases his grip on his heavenly status, and he enters the world that he authored, now as a member of the human race. It truly is an indescribable truth that we're considering this morning. And without this miraculous event, the incarnation of Jesus, there exists no good news. There exists no gospel for you or for me or for anyone else. There exists no obedient human. There exists no willing sacrifice, no acceptable substitution, no person capable of dying for the sins of another. There's no hope, no gospel, no Christianity. This doesn't exist without today, without the birth of Jesus Christ. So in one way, everything that we are and everything that we have as reborn servants of Jesus Christ begins here. This is our story and this is our song. In recent months, we've uh, been working through the Pentateuch, uh, in Genesis particularly, and we've been studying origins and the establishment of nations, a lot of ancient truths, about as old as they come, in fact. Um, but in order to, to move, at least for those of you who have been in Genesis with us, kind of move from the perspective of Abraham to the perspective of Mary, we just want to do a, a very abbreviated uh time lapse of what has happened in the meantime. We're, we're considering Abraham, the promise that he's received of, of seed and land and, and, uh, and blessing. Um, and there will be many spoilers here as far as Genesis is concerned, but he has his son Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has Joseph and many other sons, and it's Joseph by God's providence that has led to Egypt sold to Egypt, in fact, and he there rises to a prominent status. But then there arises in, in Egypt a Pharaoh who doesn't remember him, doesn't know Joseph, and there begins the captivity of the Israelite people. Uh, from there comes Moses, you know, in the Exodus, where God calls him to lead his people out. Goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and, and leads the people into the wilderness. It's after many years of their faults and failures being exposed that by God's grace, he appoints Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. And there's a conquest, and in some ways a victorious one, and in some ways a failed one, but a conquest nonetheless. And there, the people are established there. They're settled there, but among other nations. And so God raises up various judges throughout Israel's history to deliver, to deliver the people from, from the oppression of the other Canaanites that still are around. Then in time the United Kingdom is established. God, uh, in his willingness to hear the people's demands, appoints Saul, uh, once good-looking but failed king. And then follows him as David, as this prototypical king, the king in, in his glory, David the mighty one, the king of Israel, and his son Solomon, and all of their, their splendor and their, uh, the dominion of their reign. But that falls pretty soon, doesn't it? Where under Solomon's son, the kingdom is divided into north and south. 
And from there, we have a whole mess of a situation as, as the new uh, religion is introduced, is contrived by the kings themselves, and they integrate into their worship of Yahweh, the worship of all sorts of other false gods. And so God sends them prophets to hear His voice. He calls them to repentance. He calls out their idolatry. And He, he says it publicly, and He says that they'll be punished for it. And so there is the fall of the northern kingdom of their, as they're overtaken and assimilated into Assyria, and then the southern kingdom taken captive by Babylon, and there's the exile. After the exile, we have the last sort of words of the Old Testament by the post-exilic prophets. And it's after they speak, and there's some words of hope there, but it's after they speak that as quietly as the sun sets, or as quickly as the last bite of food leaves the table, the Word of God moves away from Israel. The prophetic word vanishes. Days turn to weeks, and weeks to months, months to years. The years piled on until they're more easily counted by decades and even eventually centuries. The darkness was akin to blindness, and the hunger akin to salvation. Most of the nation at this point, just before Mary lives, is wandering aimlessly. They're grasping disappointedly at artificial light and simulated food. They don't want the truth. They're not waiting in hope. The silence of God is just echoing emphatically through these years. It produces a, a near-deafening absence of divine sense. That's where Mary's at. And it was in these moments of really impenetrable darkness that the angel Gabriel flies with a word of light from the mouth of God. And he says, just before the passage that we read this morning in verse 26, the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered, thought through what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary says to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 38, Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's seek the Lord's help 
as we continue. Father, we pray your blessing on this time. Thank you for those who are here today. For prioritizing worship with your family in celebration of Jesus Christ, our Savior, born to this Virgin Mary. And pray that as we look into this text, um, in one way it's quite simple, and in another it's very profound. And so we pray that the words of Mary would find rest, a place to settle in our hearts, and that by day's end we would say with her, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Never in all of storytelling has there been a story as true and fantastic as the Incarnation. An account in which the ordinary and the extraordinary converge magnificently. But we have some quite ordinary things, don't we? Pregnancy. That's a very natural, normal thing. But virginal conception by the Holy Spirit? That's supernatural. Childbirth. That's very natural. But birthing the very Son of God as a human being? That's supernatural. And it is this miracle of the virgin birth that's described to us in Luke chapter 1 that God uses as the means to bring Jesus, the humble Savior and the eternal King, into this world. And Mary's response is exemplary. It is beautiful. She believes the unbelievable and she acknowledges her lowly place as God's servant and then she willingly embraces the task that Gabriel has delivered to her by the mouth of God. Uh, she says, Let it be to me according to your word. Some of the most beautiful words ever spoken in Scripture. And then not long after that account that we read, the account uh, we read earlier this morning comes to pass. Uh, she departed to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and it's upon the occasion of that visit that we hear Mary's further reflection in the form of this poem, this song, this psalm. This text is often referred to as the Magnificat, and it's because the opening verb, my soul magnifies, the opening verb in the Latin Vulgate is Magnificat. This song has long been sung uh, and quoted by the Christian community. It's a rich part of our tradition, our heritage, and it begins with a statement of worship followed by three sections or verses in the song, you might say, that describe the cause of Mary's worship. So when she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As she reflected upon the words of God delivered by Gabriel and experienced even at this point, she experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon her Whatever that was, whatever that felt like, I don't know. But her thoughts were turned upward. And she writes, she sings the song of rejoicing. And it begins with 
a beautifully simple and a quite personal call to worship. And she's reflecting what God has done in, in her life, my soul, my spirit. And it becomes immediately clear to the reader, if it wasn't already, that, that Mary is a young Hebrew girl whose mind is saturated by the Scriptures. Her song is modeled after and shaped by the great songs of old. In fact, we won't look at it this morning, but sometime this week, even today if you have time, go back and look at Hannah's prayer when she sang a song of rejoicing in the birth of Samuel, her son. This song of Mary is patterned after Hannah's prayer. She knew it well. And she sings many of the same things. It also sounds very much like the songs of David, the glorious king of Israel as he penned many of the thoughts that are now reflected by his virgin mother. In fact, one is quite similar. I want to share with you the beginning of Psalm 34. It opens, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make, or the humble, we'll hear that later, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So really a corporate or plural example of this song. So the response of Mary to her life circumstances as directed by God is the same as every other person who has tasted the sweet honey of relationship with Jesus, with their maker. She worships. That's how she responds. Her heart was filled to overflowing with the lines of Scripture so that when an angel from God delivers this exciting to us and also terrifying to her news, praise rushes out. You can see uh, on the screen just the parallelism that's present here. Two parallel subjects. Mary herself sang a song. A true worshiper has been personally affected here. The two parallel verbs. Mary joyfully ascribes weight to the name of her God. The unadulterated desire of Mary's heart here, here is for people to see and to know and to taste the beauty and the splendor of the living God. That's what she wants. Make His name great. Ascribe weight to it. Let the people hear. Let the people know. Of what? Well, there's two parallel objects, alternate names of God that unveil a disposition of humility from Mary. She often refers to herself as the maidservant of God. Here she calls him Lord, Master, Teacher, right? the one with authority, the one to whom she is subservient. And she calls him God, my Savior, acknowledging her need for saving. Right? As an aside, even that phrase by itself, this, this beginning of the song by itself, uh, indicates quite clearly that Mary is not to be the object of worship. Right? As you know, many throughout Christian uh, history have placed this idolatry, idolatrously large weight on Mary, uh, disastrously misunderstanding her purpose and how God was using her. God never designed uh, Mary as the recipient of worship or prayer, but we should also be careful not to, to react to poor theology with poor theology. So we want to acknowledge her role here. She is an example to us. She is set forward by God as the premier, virtuous, humble one. That's how she is described. 
She's not to be dismissed. She has this admirable character, the model of virtue, much like Ruth might have been in the Old Testament, the real-life virtuous woman from Proverbs 31. She's wonderful, and the heart of that is that she fears the Lord, as described in verse 50. Mary fears the Lord, and she embraces the role chosen for her by God with this delightful humility. So the words that follow, there's, as I said, sort of three sections, 48 through 50, 51 through 53, and then conclusion in 54 and 55. So let's take a closer look at the following lyrics in Mary's song and observe, as she describes it, these three reasons for her worship. The first one, verses 48 through 50, we see God's compassion. Mary worships because of God's compassion. Four. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, implication of his regarding, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Reason two, for he has for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. As Mary sings, oh, the wonderful benefit of being seen by God. Mary worships because she knows that she has been observed and blessed by the Most High. Much like Hagar from last week, God looks upon the lowly woman and He draws near to her with compassion. He tells her the truth concerning her son and He speaks rich words of blessing. There are, there is a parallel there between these two women, these two characters. And truly, all generations have and all generations will uh, do the result of God regarding Mary, and that is call her blessed. Not because of any inherent uh, magnificence that she possesses, but because she was chosen by God as the humble virgin with a quiet and peaceable heart, as Peter describes, who would bear into this world the divine Son of God. And so we rise with the generations and call her blessed. Though this blessing had, or maybe this blessing wasn't immediately seen, there was an immediate negative effect in Mary's life as a result of the word from Gabriel. But there is this eventual hope. Isn't that a very Christian idea? Immediate distress and eventual hope. And Mary practices that and she worships in the middle of her immediate distress and confusion. She believes the promise, the Word of God. You can note in here as the, the list of attributes of God grows. You know, not only is He uh, compassionate, but He is, he is holy, uh, He is mighty. And he is merciful. And what happens in the middle of this personal praise song, right? My soul, my spirit, he regarded me. In the middle of this personal praise song, Mary moves. It's in a very important movement. From singular pronouns, my soul, my spirit, he was kind to me, he looked upon me. So at the end of verse 50, there's a shift that continues through the rest of the song. His mercy is on those who fear Him. From generation to generation. Focus shifts from Mary to Israel. You see, worship often 
initiates in the heart of an individual. But God's intention is never that its effects remain singular. One who has been blessed is to move toward the congregation and is to tell them of the good things that God has done, to recount the mighty works of God. And then the congregation is able to rejoice with them. The congregation is able to do not just my spirit is rejoicing God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. But as Psalm 34 said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And it's this corporate song that gets raised based on something that God did in the life of an individual. Worship is ultimately a corporate act something that the family of faith does together, and we're going to speak on that more in the coming weeks. We're at the turn of the new year. We're, we're doing a, a, a short series on, on how we grow. We're looking at word, and we're looking at prayer, and we're looking at church, at fellowship. We're going to examine those once again. And one of the things that we're down through those, I, through those studies is that those are not individual ideas. They're corporate ideas. They're things we do together. And that's the pattern that Mary set for us here. Note the beginning of categories in, in verse 50. Who is the mercy of God set upon? Those who fear Him. Well, that's rather exclusive, isn't it? That's categorical, and it is. And that becomes uh, resounding in the next few verses, 51 through 53, as the character of Mary singularly is then put into a much bigger category of righteous one, humble one, gentle one, in contrast with the proud, the arrogant, the mighty rulers. And so that brings us to our second reason that Mary worships. She worships because of God's strength. You might put beside that also his, his justice, his ability by his strength to accomplish justice. That's, that's the heartbeat of what she's getting at here in, in 51 through 53. She says, He has shown strength with His arms. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. Categories, again. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. God by His mighty arm, will accomplish justice. And Mary's song here, this, this may or may not come through initially or, or on first read, but Mary's song is moving from the present, uh, what God has done regarding the lowly state of His, of his maidservant, to her confidence in the future. That's what the grammar is accomplishing here. You hear the, the absolute certainty in her voice. Now, we would do well right, to recall these things that are, that are consistent with this, that are historically true. And we could walk through the narratives of Scripture and, and give numerous examples of God bringing down the arrogant, bringing down the mighty ruler and delivering His people. But one of the reasons that all of those narratives exist is to give God's people confidence that they will be true in an ultimate sense, in an eventual sense. It's a present state of bringing down the mighty is our ultimate one, then we can hardly say that the mighty have been brought low. There are still many mighty in power, many proud, many arrogant, 
that are ruling. That would be the majority. Right? These moments in Scripture where God undoes that are more the exception than the rule, and the Psalms would attest to that. We are, and Peter would attest to that. Right? Today is not our day, but tomorrow is. And so the, the tense of these verbs is best understood as describing the future work of God's Son, Mary's Son, with the certainty, she's speaking of, of them, with the certainty of a past event. So in the Hebrew language, it's the prophetic perfect. In Greek, it's not that exact thing in Greek, but that's what, that's what he's seeking to accomplish. Is it's already done. It's as good as done. And so Mary saw as accomplished what God would do through the child that was presently in her womb. That is magnificent. That is faith. That is hope. And the way in which she does it, she describes it, is with these categorical distinctions that are established, right? The, the proud and the humble, the mighty and the lowly, the hungry and the rich. There's a visible demonstration, then, of what it looks like to fear the Lord. And you can see in the poem there is, uh, once again, you can tell that Mary is a Hebrew girl, even though the, the, this is recorded for us in Greek. Um, she's doing all of these beautiful psalmic Hebrew poetry things. There's this parallelism, the A, B, C, A, God putting down, God bringing up, God bringing up, God putting down. And within those categories, we have mighty, arrogant, rich, rejectors who do not fear God. They are characterized by their pride. They will experience judgment, deposition, and emptying at the hand of God. They may be full today, but they will go home hungry. And in contrast, there are these lowly, hungry worshipers who do fear God, like Mary, as an example. They're characterized by their humility, and they will experience mercy, exaltation, filling at the hand of God. Jesus fills the hungry. He enriches the poor. And these teachings, I mean, this is perhaps the first note of them in the New Testament, but this is the beginning of, of many things that are reflected in Jesus' own personal life and example, and also in his teaching, right? From his personal, perfect humility that's demonstrated in this very event of his letting go of his high position in heaven and becoming lowly, all the way, ultimately, as, as Philippians would say, to the point of death on a cross, uh, to his upside-down teaching about leadership and blessing, right? The first will be last, the last will be first. The rich will be poor, the poor will be rich. The healthy are sick, the sick are healthy. Like, it's just this sort of reversal that Jesus brings in the systems of humanity because the world looks at all of these categories in a backwards manner. We reward evil and punish good. We love gods of wood and stone while dismissing God most high. That's the state of humanity. It's only God, it's only Jesus through the womb of Mary that has the power to establish this justice system, and she believes that he'll do it. It's beautiful. 
Jesus began this mission of verses 51 through 53 in his incarnation, and we still wait for the ultimate fulfillment of it. For his, and he promised, right, to finish this word with great strength. Mary believed him, and we should too. Notice that the salvation that God brings to the humble also simultaneously works judgment for the arrogant. So once again, in the middle of our affliction, in the middle of our lowliness, in the middle of our poverty or hunger, remember that God brings people down that He might raise them up to newness of life and to rich inheritance in His Son, Jesus. So I say to you with Peter, to myself and to our family, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. The third and final reason that Mary worships is because of God's help. Mass verses 54 and 55. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance, how? In remembrance of His mercy. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And so Mary concludes with her song of of confident worship by a word of assurance, a word of belief, confidence that God will help. He's going to keep his promise to Abraham. No, he is keeping his promise to Abraham. And Mary's womb is proof of that. You remember as we studied in Genesis the account of of Noah and the global flood. And throughout there, there's this phrase that God remembered Noah. If you remember back to that, this is the same way Mary is using remembering in the same way that Moses used remembering in relationship to God and Noah. And it's not that God had forgotten and now his call to mind like a reminder on his phone. It's not that he has to remember. The concept is that he keeps his promise in the front of his mind. He will accomplish it. He has not forgotten. And then the moments in which, you know, the water begins to recede, the moments in which the son is promised to the womb of a virgin, in those moments we get a glimpse we get to see God is remembering His promise. God is actively keeping it. And we're encouraged because we love signs. We love moments of clarity in the middle of moments of frustration and confusion. And so He's not calling to mind, but keeping His promise before Him. God never forgets His promises. And He had promised, as we've been studying at length, to mercifully bless the world through the seed of Abraham. The ancient words that we've been studying in Genesis, those same words are the foundation of Mary's hope. And the text describes, the, according to her, like the brightest moment in Revelation to date. <laughs> this is Jesus arriving on the scene, breaking the silence and scattering the darkness. And so she says, truly he has done great things. He is helping, he is remembering. There is great continuity 
in the history of salvation. This is a promise of old, and we have inherited it of old from ancient days. And so, in concluding, a few concluding thoughts. One of the most beautiful things, consider this concept with me, one of the most beautiful things about Mary's song, she considers God's compassion and strength and help is that each of her motivations to worship are directly tied to the divine child in her womb. She's not just reflecting upon the father of Israel. She is also reflecting upon his son, the fulfillment of the promises that he has made. And so if you think of God's compassion, Right? He sees and he blesses Mary in Christ. The baby is evidence that he saw her. The baby is evidence that he blessed her. If you think of Mary's consideration of God's strength, probably this one more than any of the others, right? Jesus is the one that reverses the unjust systems. It's in him this baby will grow to be the conqueror. She's not just speaking of the Father of Israel. She's speaking of the one who comes in great strength, who now is ultimately weak in her womb. And then the final one, Mary considers God's help. He keeps his promises. How? In Christ. The baby is the fulfillment. He is the seed. And so just marry these two in your mind that, that that's what this virgin is considering. That's what she's singing of, is that she's singing of her son. She's singing of Jesus, who now resides almost undetected in her womb. I'll leave you with a quote from Virgin as we conclude this morning. It's an encouragement to say the same thing that Mary did. He says, We can as truly say as Mary did, My soul doth magnify the Lord. If there are any of you present who cannot say it, get to your chambers, fall on your knees, and cry to the Lord to help you to do so. For as long as a man cannot magnify God, he is not fit for heaven, where the praises of God are the eternal occupation of all the blessings. If you cannot magnify.